0: They were looking for a god, a small party of men in southern India in the late 1920s, when, as now, there were a lot of gods in India. But these men were not looking for just any god. They were looking for one particular version of one particular god, perhaps the greatest version of the greatest god anyone had ever fashioned anywhere in the world. And they found him, these strangers. They found the god with four arms. Fire in one hand, cobras wrapped around his arms, dreadlocks flowing like the Ganges River, dancing in a ring of fire. They found Nataraja, who was in fact the Hindu god Shiva, portrayed in this case as the lord of the dance, a bronze figure about two and a half feet tall, the almighty creator and destroyer of the universe, no bigger than a radio set. They found him in a temple in a small village, where he had been perhaps for the better part of a thousand years. And then they asked to buy him. The strangers negotiated with the priests of the temple, and the priests agreed to sell their statue in exchange for a new and larger version. But only if everyone in the village agreed, and only if the god himself agreed, agreed to leave this ancient battered bronze home and relocate, move up to shiny new digs, like the upwardly mobile god he was about to become. And so the priests prayed and watched for signs, and the villagers prayed and watched for signs. And the visitors waited and waited until at last the statue was put on poles, carried out of town, just far enough that everyone was assured the God had left, vacated the premises without objection. And then the men boxed it up and bee-lined for a boat Now, this was happening all over southern India where there were lots of statues of this particular version of this particular god and a lot of hired men hunting for them. It happened for a good 20 years or so until there were statues of Nataraja, the dancing Shiva in Minneapolis and New York and Los Angeles and Brooklyn and Cleveland and St. Louis and Kansas City Philadelphia and Houston and Honolulu and Zurich and Amsterdam and London. A phenomenon that says something about this god, but even more about us mortals. This is the object produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Today, the story of an Eastern god who became a Western obsession. A museum must have that for a brief moment brought a divided world imperfectly together. It's Everyone Loves Shiva. I'm Tim Gearing. East is East and West is West, and never the twain shall meet. According to Rudyard Kipling, the poet laureate of toxic masculinity, who grew up in British India and wrote The White Man's Burden in 1899 and decided there was nothing the East could do that the West couldn't do better, that the culture clash was simply too great to overcome. Never the twain shall meet. But the West had not yet met Nataraja, the god Shiva, as the lord of the dance. Shiva has been a god for a long time, forever if you like. He's the creator and the destroyer, the beginning and the end. And when he dances in the form of Nataraja, the lord of the dance, He creates and destroys incessantly. A kind of perpetual motion machine. The dreadlocked engine of the universe. But until recently, almost no one in the universe knew about Nataraja. He was a local god, among many others. Even European missionaries who passed through India in the 1600s and 1700s, sizing up the local competition, paid him little mind. And then... In the early 1900s, Nataraja began showing up in the West. The mysteries of the East were seducing artists of all kinds then, who loved and abused those mysteries in turn. Magicians like Chung Ling Su, who was really Billy Robinson from New York, who died when the trick gun that was supposed to fire blanks at his face so he could pretend to catch bullets in his teeth turned out to be loaded with the real thing. Lower the curtain, he said when he was shot. The first words he had spoken on stage since pretending not to know English. Or the exotic dancer Mata Hari, who was really Margaretha, a pale Dutch woman, who would set up a kind of Indian temple in rich people's homes or clubs with a statue of the dancing Shiva and would dance in front of it. Exotically, meaning until she was nearly naked. This made Nataraja a lot better known. Manahari was shot too, accused of spying, hauled before a French firing squad, and killed. This was in 1917, the same year that a man named Ananda Kentish Kumaraswamy moved to the United States. He had been hired as the first curator of Indian art at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. And he knew more about Nataraja than maybe anyone with their clothes on. Certainly he had more to say about it. And what he said changed everything. Ananda Kentish Kumaraswamy had invented himself too, in a way. Born in Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, but raised in England mostly. By the time he moved to Boston, he had lived on a houseboat in Kashmir married an English photographer, married an English dancer, and divorced them both. He knew Latin and Greek and French and Italian and German, along with the languages he needed to get by in life, which for him included Pali and Sanskrit. He called himself a metaphysician, which was an interesting thing to be in America in the early 1900s, when you could be assured of being the only one in any room you walked into. He befriended the avant-garde like photographer Alfred Stieglitz and his mistress, Georgia O'Keeffe. He despised conventional Western society as much as they did. Not because the West had stolen from the East. No, it was the attitude that upset him. The stereotype that the East was primitive and pagan. That the East was East. And so when Kamaraswamy sat down to write in America, he wrote as a kind of translator, an emissary of the East, who could patiently explain why the West was full of crap. He wrote an essay called The Dance of Shiva in 1918. And there he suggested, in pseudo-mystical language that would get you thrown out of college today, that the Nataraja statue was both poetry and science a supreme and universal symbol of grace. It should appeal, he wrote, to the philosopher, the lover, and the artist of all ages and all countries. And that was it. The slap in the face the West needed to see the East for what it is, for the twain to meet, or at least to see Nataraja as a complete and total hunk Aldous Huxley, the English dude who wrote Brave New World, said the West had no art quite like the Nataraja, with its vast and cosmic symbolism. August Rodin, the sculptor, called the Nataraja the most perfect expression of rhythmic movement in the world. And so when Kumar Swami managed to get a Nataraja statue from India for the Boston Museum in 1921... Every other museum wanted one, too. And soon, as so often happens, a man offered to help. That man was C.T. Lu, a man like everyone else in this story, who had invented himself. Lu was once Lu Huanwei, born in a Chinese village so small and isolated that everyone had the same surname, an orphan with an orphan's pluck. He went to work as a teenager in the silk trade and got himself to Paris as a guest of his boss, where he cut off his queue, changed his name, bought some silk ties and pocket squares, and stayed, working in the antiques import business. He opened his own gallery in 1908 with branches in Beijing and Shanghai and eventually New York so that by the time World War I was underway in 1915, C.T. Liu was the greatest pipeline the West had to the East. Whatever Asian art there was in American museums in the early 20th century, most of it came through him. He fell in love with the owner of a hat shop a few doors down from his Paris gallery, but she was devoted to an older man and so she offered her 15 year old daughter to Lou in marriage, so they could still have a life together. He accepted. He built the giant pagoda in Paris in 1925, painted it red, and moved himself and his art and his young wife into it. But he was often in New York in his Fifth Avenue Gallery, or on the road, traveling America by train from museum to museum with some statue or porcelain that he would leave behind as a loan, with the hope that some rich person would come along and buy it for the museum, which they almost always did. He was a kind of high-class peddler, a dealer, and like all the best dealers, he could supply whatever you wanted. It was C.T. Liu who sent the men to southern India, to trade for a Nataraja statue, and delivered it to the Minneapolis Institute of Art. And then he did it again and again and again, until almost every museum that wanted a dancing Shiva had a dancing Shiva. This happens more than you think. Art is valued for its uniqueness, artists for their singular vision, but museums often all want the same stuff at the same time for their own people, that they might be tuned into the zeitgeist, Minneapolis or Cleveland or St. Louis, and not miss out. These museums appeared to buy Kumar Swami's argument that the East was as elevated as the West, the same but different, and they had the statues to prove it, but they maintained a kind of distance between themselves and the other. Why, asked the St. Louis Museum in 1930, would an artistically trained oriental consider a statue like this the high point of Hindu art? They don't answer. Mostly, they argued about who had the better Nataraja, the one with fuller buttocks or tauter thighs or a dreamier disposition. Cleveland claimed its sculpture was second only to a famous example in Madras, India, failing by only three and a half centimeters to measure up. It was the kind of thing that makes museums look like ninnies. Kumaraswamy, meanwhile, was learning to love the West. He got into photography through Alfred Stieglitz, took pictures of rail yards and brooding skies, and he persuaded the museum in Boston to acquire Stieglitz's photos, one of the first museums to accept photography as art. He divorced again and remarried another white woman who performed ethnic dance. She was 17 when she joined Kumar Swami on a trip to India and the Far East, learning the native dances. She married him soon after. But if Kumar Swami failed to change the West, he succeeded in changing the East. The Nataraja became an icon of India. It went on an Indian postage stamp in 1949 and on the lawn of the CERN facility in Geneva, Switzerland, in 2004. A gift from India. A gift of God to the place that's still searching for the God particle. The East became wise to the West and closed its doors to people like C.T. Liu. When the communists came to power in China, Lou's agents were jailed, or exiled, or sent to work camps. He had been a convenient man to museums in the West, but after World War II, he was a bit embarrassing, lugging the few treasures he still managed to get out of Asia from town to town. When he came through Minneapolis then, the director of the Minneapolis Institute of Art couldn't be roused from a meeting to see him. East was East again. West was West. Never the twain shall meet. After Pearl Harbor, after Hiroshima, exoticism no longer made sense. The genie was out of the bottle. There were no illusions left, no mysteries, no romantics, no gods. No one cared about Shiva's buttocks anymore. Lou was finished, and he never quite understood how it happened. He had done what was asked of him. He had built a bridge between east and west and now others had burned it. Which is what the Nataraja tells us will happen in Minneapolis and Cleveland and Kansas City. If anyone is still paying attention to the god with four arms dancing in the ring of fire, the statue that might look today like something you got at the local head shop to hide your weed in, or the party favor your four year old came home with from her friend's mindfulness yoga birthday bash tells us that nothing lasts that everything created will be destroyed, over and over, while the God stands on and on and on. This has been the Object Podcast. I'm Tim Gehring. Find us on the web at artsmia.org. Send us feedback. Leave a review on Stitcher or Google, wherever you happen to be listening.